Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and the word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. A lesson from the Old Testament, Job 38, 1, 4 through 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the light upon it? And what word space is sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the line upon when the morning stars sang together, and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, and the thick darkness its swaddling band, and the prescribed bounds for it, the set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud ways be stopped. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, so that it may take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and it is dyed like a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the spring of the sea, or walked in the recess of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern its paths to its home? Surely you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouse of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is disturbed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cut a channel for the turrets of rain, and was the thunderbolt to bring the rain on a land, where no one lives, on the desert which is empty of human life, to satisfy the waste of and desolate land, and to make the ground put forth grass? Has the rain a father who has forgotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the hoar frost of heaven? And the waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the change of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazareth in their seasons? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinance of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on the earth? Can you lift up the voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so that they may go and stay, say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water skins of heaven when the dust runs into the mass and the clouds cling together? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
my technology, I'm, I'm new this morning. Um, so if you're a little one and you're like, I don't know who that person is, that is true. I'm not usually up here, and that's why I'm fiddling with the equipment too. Um, but we're glad to have you come forward. And if you're tuning in online and you're a little one and want to come a little closer to the screen, that's great too. Good morning, folks. So... I'm going to chat a little bit today with the grown-ups about hard questions. When you have a difficult question, who who do you ask that question of? No? Your mom? Yeah, definitely mom. Who else? Dad. Dad? A teacher? Grandpa. Yeah, grandpas have great answers, right? Grandma, uh, pastor, yeah. We're going to talk today a little bit about how sometimes it's okay to ask God those hard questions too. Sometimes we just have really difficult questions, and it's okay to ask those questions. Oh, that's true. It's it's okay to ask those questions of the people who care about us, and God cares about us a lot. God's always listening. And God can take all those hard questions, no matter how difficult they are. You want to pray with me? All right. God, you're always with us. We give you thanks for for listening to us, being present, and being willing to listen to all of our questions, even when they can be very, very difficult. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are three, four, or five, you can head that direction to Children's Church. And if you are not three, four, or five, if you want to go back to the pew and sit with your, oh, your four, you can totally go that way. Four and a half? That works too. Absolutely. Good morning, folks. The book of Job is a really challenging biblical text, uh, perhaps one of the most challenging books of the Bible, which is why when Pastor Carol called to invite me to preach today, she began by saying, before you say yes, I need you to know the text is Job. I I did say yes, uh, but I did pause a moment, remembering that in some Jewish interpretation, folks aren't ready to interpret Job and understand it until they turn 40. So by that measure, I have at least two more years before I can possibly understand the text. But I agreed to wrestle with the text with you as we journey through the Bible together this year, because I think it's important to engage with even the difficult texts in Scripture. Even with a difficult text today, it is a joy this morning to be worshiping with you together at Weston United Methodist Church. Why is Job so notoriously difficult a text to think with? to read, and to preach from, well, has something to do with the story. The book of Job is a story of a man, Job, who seems to have it all. He's a good man. He's wise and blessed with family, wealth, health, stability. He's faithful to God, and he acts rightly and justly in all that he does. But Job is suddenly struck by disaster. He loses everything. His wealth dissipates, his health deteriorates, and he loses his family. 
Just as suddenly as everything is right for Job, now everything is wrong. And Job, Job has the same reaction I might have. Wait, why? He even gets angry and he starts to name the hard truth of the situation. He is a righteous man. He is innocent and yet he is suffering. Why? Job asks a hard question we all have asked in some form or another. Why do bad things happen to good people? Huge portions of the book of Job consist of Job explaining his innocence, his righteousness, and asking this question of God over and over. Why? Job echoes some of our deepest, most difficult questions of faith. Now, some friends show up to help Job out. They want to be helpful to this man who has encountered so much loss, except they aren't actually that helpful. I'm sure many of us have experienced this, that person who says precisely the wrong thing at a funeral. Job's friends also have long speeches in which they insist to Job over and over he must have done something wrong to have all this bad stuff happen to him. Job can't possibly be good and righteous and have all this happen to him. He must deserve what has befallen him somehow. They keep pressing, are you sure, Job? You couldn't possibly have been righteous and had this happen to you. Well, these friends of Job aren't really such great friends after all. Scholars have noted that Job's friends represent a perspective that reflects the wisdom tradition in the Bible, exemplified by a book like Proverbs. Proverbs, full of pithy sayings about how to live a good life, a wise and prudent life, has a sort of equation to it. God rewards the wise and punishes the foolish. God rewards the good and punishes the wicked. So if you do A, you get B. It's easy. Proverbs contain a lot of wisdom that can be motivating and challenging for us to develop good rhythms and habits in our faith lives, but it doesn't represent the whole of what scripture has to tell us. Sometimes scriptural traditions are in conversation with one another, sometimes even critiquing one another. And that is what the book of Job represents. Job's friends represent the wisdom tradition point of view. Some things in life have cause and effect that are clear, direct, personal. For example, I recently traveled for almost two and a half weeks, uh, and I knew I was taking a risk with the small plants that I had been tending. I watered them heavily before I left. Um, but when I returned, one of my tomatoes hadn't made it. And frankly, it was, it was a very small loss given everything I put those plants through. I also recently purchased some small trees that I'm putting in this weekend, made sure to water them very well this week in the midst of the heat, uh, and they're fine. And I'll be putting them in this afternoon. I put some in yesterday. They stayed just fine. I water, they stay all right. Job, however, represents a different perspective in scripture. What scholars have noted is an anti-wisdom point of view. Job's experience and my experience and maybe your experience is sometimes things aren't that simple. Bad stuff happens to good people who do good things. 
and no amount of platitudes or short, pithy sayings you can print on a sign and hang in your living room will change that. So much suffering does not have clear personal cause and effect. And random and widespread harm causes much, much suffering in the world. Floods, tornadoes, illness, gun violence, accidents, smoke from wildfires. All of these have caused suffering in our Nashville community. It's natural to ask, why? It's the question Job asks. Why, God, does bad stuff happen to good people sometimes? This theological question is often called theodicy. What kind of a loving and powerful God allows all this suffering? The passage we heard from Job today is God's answer. Toward the end of Job, after many, many speeches, if you've been reading through this week, you know it was very long, dry reading. Job's terrible friends make speeches. Job makes speeches. And after some stubborn insistence from Job, God shows up. And the passage we read today is God's answer to Job. God's answer comes in the form of a series of questions. God has questions for Job. Job, where were you when I made the seas and the heavens? Have you comprehended the whole earth? Have you been here for every dawn? Have you taken the measure of every creation? Have you numbered all the stars in the sky? Do you know all the creatures of the earth and the sky and the sea? Do you provide food for them? Do you put wisdom in humanity? Now, on the one hand, I find this answer a little dissatisfying. God is saying to Job, hey, Job, who do you think you are? Are you God? God's answer is, I am God, and you are not. It's a bit of a non-answer. It's a dodge. It's perhaps so much of a dodge that scholars think that later on, compilers of the text were dissatisfied and added a preface and an epilogue to the beginning and end of Job to make it all make sense. See, if you start at the beginning of Job now, it's all set up as an elaborate test between God and Satan to test Job's faithfulness. And at the end of Job, because Job stays faithful and doesn't curse God, God rewards him and gives him health, lands, and a new family. The beginning and end of Job likely reflect later attempts by the community to make Job make sense. There has to be an easy explanation for this whole puzzling, difficult book. But I think it is honest to scripture and to our experience not to jump to easy answers, not to immediately add a nice frame to make this all make sense. After all, how happy is this happy ending? Job's first family still died. You can't replace people with new people, even if you can find joy and meaning and community after grief. And if this is all just a big test of our faith, well, that seems not particularly great of God either. It doesn't solve the theodicy question. Well, if you thought I'd solve the theodicy question in a 13-minute sermon, I, I hate to let you down. Um, I'm not. 
folks out there get PhDs and write whole books on the topic, and a quick prologue and epilogue don't solve it in Job either. Instead, I think there's something profoundly true and meaningful we learn from our scripture today, precisely from this messy middle part, from this confusing, perhaps dissatisfying divine response. It is honest about our broken world and our human experiences, and it places God right in the middle of them. I recently vacationed with my wife in Acadia National Park. We're northern transplants, and we're trying to get somewhere cooler than Nashville for a little bit. Like so many of our national parks, Acadia is full of truly jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring wonder. We hiked along towering, jagged granite cliffs right along the cold ocean waves. We saw blueberry bushes growing in the cracks between rocks. We hiked up mountain trails where trees seemed to find a way to grow tall, even on nearly vertical rocky slopes. We scrambled over boulders the size of cars. and We imagined them tumbling down mountains to their resting places thousands of years ago. We looked out over islands and ocean and forest and sky and were in awe of the ocean's horizon on a beautiful clear day. We knew that there was nothing beyond except for Europe, somewhere far, far on the other side. Sometimes when things are really difficult, when I have the biggest questions about life, I find meaning in being in the presence of God's creation and realizing that it is far beyond my measure, far beyond my comprehension. It's much bigger and grander and more awesome. It's not an easy answer to the questions I have, but I find it a comfort to get a bit of perspective of myself in the vastness of the universe. I think God's answer to Job is a little like that. There are two other comforts I take from God's response that tie into this beautiful and sweeping description of the vastness of creation. First, I want to remind us of how God's answer begins. It's from the very beginning of this chapter. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God shows up right in the whirlwind of our lives. God is right there in the worst moments, in our deepest pain and loss and grief. God is present with us even in the whirlwinds of our lives. And sometimes we can hear God's voice clearest in these moments. This doesn't make our suffering good or provide an easy fix to it, but I find it a deep comfort that God is present with Job, listening and responding. God shows up to answer Job first, which is the passage we heard today. Right after, though, God rebukes Job's so-called friends. Take a look in chapter 42 when you get home if you haven't read it already. God addresses one of his friends. My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Job's so-called friends and their overly simplistic theology that bad things only happen to you if you deserve it, that's rebuked. God affirms Job's questioning, and he critiques his companion's simplistic answers. Beloved, I hear good news in this. Here's the second comfort I take from Job. 
There is no question too hard to throw at God. There is no complaint too loud for God. If God is bigger than the oceans and the sky and all the creatures, then God can take it. All of our anger, all of our doubt, all of our grief. God says that Job, who has spent chapters throwing everything he has at God, Job speaks right. If you're in suffering, if you've heard trite responses to difficult quandaries or platitudes in response to deep grief, or worse, if you've been blamed for all the bad things that have ever gone on in your life, know that scripture records God affirming hard questions without easy answers over oversimplified theological niceties. I'm not always super excited to wrestle with the difficult texts in scripture, and the book of Job really is quite a difficult text. But I also give thanks that God speaks to us through scripture, even the difficult texts, that God can handle our most difficult questions, and that even when we don't find answers, we can still encounter God's ever-steady presence in our lives. Amen.